and welcome to this dangerous podcast. My name is Johnny Maunders. Unfortunately, DJ and Bertie are not with us this week. Second week running, I really want to remind everybody that they are not dead or kidnapped or I'm trying to think what else they could be. On a life raft in the Pacific. That's an interesting thought. Maybe I'll do some research to double check that I'm in the Pacific on a lifeboat. Um, so yeah, welcome back to this dangerous podcast, the podcast that holds the powerful to account talks about the really serious things in the world and some silly things as well and just generally me getting angry about pretty much everything um and some guests getting angry as well and i'm delighted to say we have got a guest today second week running again feels like we're back on we've, we've the trend is back to have guests and we will carry on trying to have guests anyway this guest unfortunately had to cancel last week because her phone was stolen um but she's back now and she's a student and an activist and her name is meg day meg welcome hi thank you so much for having me on um i've got my phone back now so everything's everything's good happy to be here did you have to like pay to get your phone back no 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 um like it got taken but then like left somewhere and someone found it and just so that's like even i think that's even worse than theft it's bad theft Yep. Like knowing that your phone was stolen by someone who's not even good enough a thief to actually like take it back to their house. We need more bad thieves. Yeah, maybe. Maybe that's where society's going wrong. It's too many it good really thieves. Really helps out. Yeah. To be fair, most of the Tories are bad thieves. So mm, they thieves. do quite well. Yeah, but I feel like they do well in spite of the fact they're bad. This uh, is true. Because they're so obvious and overt about it. It's just that they like somehow like luckily, well, they're getting a bit wider point about how they've like constructed the investigation mechanism to such a point, such a point where they can actually commit the crime and be investigated and not found guilty of such crime. But that sounds yeah. incredibly serious for this podcast. <laughs> yeah. So, Meg, thank you very much for for joining us. We've been trying to arrange this for a while haven't we it's it's yeah. one reason or the other me being lazy you having your phone stolen um it's almost like the podcast gods have been conspiring um not for this to happen but it is finally happened so yes. my first question my first question for you is you you're an activist what politicized you what made you become an activist um, so like many people in my generation, like I grew up like um, very working class. I grew up with a single parent and um, I guess like you kind of always have this sense that like, when you're kind of like um, on benefits or whatever, like that your life is kind of tied to like the state and what the state does. Um, so that was always kind of on my mind growing up. And then around 2015 time around the general election, I took more of like a, an academic interest in politics. Politics. And then obviously we saw we saw Jeremy Corbyn come around. He got elected as leader when I was about 14. Um, soon got involved in all, all sorts of things. And obviously climate change was, was on the cards a lot less so than it is now. But it was a lot less in consciousness, but I was also very conscious about that. Um, and then you just keep saying yes. And, and here we are, like, what, seven, six, seven years later? I can I definitely relate to that though you've depressed me infinitely by telling me you were 14 when Jeremy Corbyn was elected because yeah I was like doing a bit of campaigning around that and I definitely was not 14. Yeah if it makes it any better I'd only just turned 14 like I was 13 and then just turning um, 14 yeah. I was, I was 21 I had hair then and perhaps perhaps what happened next is why I no longer have that much hair. That point about saying yes to things is really interesting because that's definitely what happened with me as well is that and to be fair, for me, it followed a point where in my life where I was saying no to a lot of things. I don't want to start bringing the film Yes Man into it, into this, but I did sort of like suddenly just learn to start saying yes to things and realizing that opportunities will come. But also just in activism, the more stuff you say yes to, the further sort of carried down the path you become and the more things you join and the more protests you go to, the more organizations you become involved. And then before you know it, you're like, wow, how did this, you know, how did this happen? Absolutely. So, yeah. Like, yeah. Sorry, carry on. No, no, I was just going to say, like, it happens to to so many people. And, like, 
yeah, you just you just don't want to miss out after a while and you feel so passionate just about everything because you see the way it all links. So I don't think we're not alone in this. And at that time, sort of like 2015 and afterwards, the years afterwards, it just it felt it felt like we were just on the precipice of change. It felt like there was just a huge opportunity and things were opening up and something was happening. Um, I'm not sure, you know, obviously you're quite a bit younger, so I'm not sure how, how it felt for you, but certainly for, for me, being an activist at the time, campaigning for things, it just felt like we were on the, the like, the change was coming. And I still remember that day Jeremy was elected and I was on a um, refugee protest. Um, and it was incredible. It was just sort of like a party atmosphere and just sort of like a sense of disbelief. But just from that moment on, until it ended, really, it felt like we were on the sort of precipice of change. Leah, that entire time, like, it feels so distant now, but there was in in a few organisations at the time that was like, we are going to take control of, like, the fifth biggest economy in the world. And it was just, it was so exciting. And I think we will get that back, like, absolutely. But um, yeah. This is, the, this is the question I was going to ask you, though: is that obviously being obviously being a young person, do you feel? Um, I love the way by saying that I'm pitting myself as an old person. Do you feel st- you still feel confident, like post Corbyn, that things can change and that things, you know, will change, or do you feel that's it? It's gone, and we just have to sit watching Keir Starbot do nothing. <laughs> Well, I think like on like the 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 day after the, the the moment the exit poll was released, I saw this tweet and it stuck with me ever since. So I was like, "Don't worry, we're all still here." And like that's kind of stuck with me because you've got this. There was this sense that like, oh, Corbyn's failed, the entire project has failed, but everyone who campaigned for him is still around. And everyone who voted for him is still around. Like the majority, nearly like so many people voted for him in 2017, like in like the, the striving for a better world. Um, and I think maybe 2019 taught us like the limits of uh, what electoralism alone can do and the importance of like building more of a movement. But yeah. Um, did, did 2019 also think, show, show what the limits of the Labour Party is as well? I think it taught us the limits perhaps of like the method of some in the Corbyn, particularly at the cop, the top of the Corbyn like leadership. Yeah. But I think, I don't know. I think that when, when people give up on the Labour Party, they always kind of fail to say what else we can do. Mm-hmm. So like, I'm, I'm happy to listen to other ideas, but so far I haven't really heard any. You're right though, but about, about the people still being there but would you not do you not think that it's also a case of the important question of being of being what happens to these people in the sense that i think you're right so many people would join the Labour party because of jeremy and because of sort of the initial movement around it and i guess the the biggest shame would be as if all of that was wasted because us i guess as a group lost hope um and so I think that's for me is like my concern is what happens to those people, because my biggest worry is that they lose hope. And I think a lot of some of them have and become swallowed up in the sort of either in apathy. And so they just fade out and don't do anything or they get swallowed. And, and, and I think we've seen some of this swallowed into sort of the machinery and spend time debating things that aren't really that important in the scheme of change, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that last point is particularly like relevant to like internet culture, mm. particularly in like in lockdown. Like you kind of had no choice but to debate people on the internet. Like what I mean, if you still wanted to get engaged, there really wasn't really much much being done um for people who also, also it's kind of fun to debate people. Yeah, website. no, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna deny that. <laughs> these these people that, that came to Corbyn, like they particularly like younger generations who've kind of, we didn't really know any other leader that well. Like we've kind of been raised with like the expectation that the Labour Party is like a radical force for change. And I think a lot of us still are in the party of like whether we've left out of like moral principle or whether we're being suspended and kicked out. 
I think like a lot of us are still there, but you're also seeing like a mass growth of like alternative like socialist organizations and you're seeing mass growth in like tenant unions and trade unions and things like that. And that's a real, real cause for hope. But um, a lot of people that aren't active right now, whether because it's a burnout or like they just give up on the whole process. I think when there's another movement similar to Corbyn or if, if there is, they will come back. Like people mm. are just desperate for hope and, you know, and there is none at the moment, but, but there will be, there will be. I guess sort of pre-Corbyn, the majority of left, the left was sort of, and sort of change, I guess, was brought from sort of what you what you mentioned, sort of um, extra parliamentary activity um, and protests and groups like Stop the War, obviously student groups as well. And I feel like there was a sort of gap sort of after 2019, a short gap. Everyone's like, oh God, what are they doing now? But it does feel like in the last year, maybe year and a half, you've started seeing people sort of filter back to those movements um, and those movements starting to have an effect. So I hope that sort of continues and I hope that can fill the void. And because the reality is like with Corbyn, it's those movements that will produce another Corbyn if, the, if, if that is to happen. I think like because Corbyn, like, Corbyn and Corbynism like rattled the establishment so much. Like obviously, like you saw a Labour Party conference with um, the, the the threshold for how many MPs need to nominate a potential leader. You're seeing that like the ruling class are going to make this like quite difficult for us now. But like I remember, like John McDonald, like always, John McDonald always says that like. Diane, Jeremy and John stayed around throughout the Blair years. And it's like, if they can stay around under Tony Blair and under Gordon Brown, I think we have an obligation to as well. Because look what look what came from those three being in the socialist campaign group. And mm. it like you had we were so close to power because of that. I think it will happen again. Fair enough. So obviously you're, you're a student. Um what is, this is going to make me sound really old, but what is student politics like at the moment? And what what is the biggest issue facing students at the moment? Gosh, there's so, there's so much happening in the student movement at the moment, particularly in like the pro-Palestine, um, like Solidarity of Palestine campaigns we're seeing after, after the big demos in London and across the country in May. And um, yeah, the backlash to that was horrific. But I'd say like, I can talk probably more to, to my experience at university but one of the big things that's happening to students is like the threat from the treasury the threat from government um, of lowering the repayment threshold which effectively the, the someone went on the news and was like students you know former students are not paying back their debts like domestic students who got a loan from the UK government aren't paying back debt fast enough but it's because they aren't earning enough money. And it's like this really weird dichotomy that like, are we going to have to mobilize in the same way, but obviously more effectively that they did when tuition fees were trebled on the, under the coalition government. Um, yeah, and obviously it's completely awful for international students, but fees are increasing um, for EU students this year in particular after Brexit. Um, and, like rents are increasing every year. And last year it was really hard to get a job. So, so many working class students had to drop out because they didn't have enough money. And like, there's a mental health crisis amongst students. It's just, it's a lot, but we're, I think, I think the movement is, is stronger than it's been for a while. That's good to hear. That's good to hear. From the outside looking in, I definitely, I definitely can see that. I definitely think it is strong. And I think students traditionally have been very good at grasping things when things elsewhere look pretty sterile and weak. Students always seem to be the best at sort of grasping the, the nettle, is that the word I'm looking for? I don't know. Like the bull by the horn or something? Yes, taking the bull by the horns. Yeah. <laughs> That's the one. I think... Um... One of those meaningless idioms. Cool. So, like all of them could be inserted here, to be honest. <laughs> Any of them. Any no, of them. No. They're all interchangeable. They're basically meaningless. 
meaningful if people understand them. Yeah. Mm. So not me. <laughs> As you said, like students have kind of, and like, especially with like the increasing like predatorianization of like um, university stuff and like students in particular, you're kind of seeing students become more radical, but like you also see the demonization of students as well. Mm. And it's mm. like, it's so important to like link the struggles of like students and workers because they are so desperate for us to be enemies. And it's yeah. like, no, the, the struggle is the same. We're, we're suffering. Most of us are workers too. Mm-hmm. I just want to see. Definitely. Definitely. Um, now, something that was still pretty, well, which was important in, in my day, again, I said, I don't know why I'm trying to sound so ancient today. But um, yeah, that was the thing in my day, in the sense that I was around the time of junior doctor strikes. So I was trying to make sh- get students to go and support them, junior doctors, and basically remind everyone that that we're all in this together, and you know that we should all be expressing solidarity and joining each other in, in each other's struggles. Yeah, I see that like even more with junior doctors because like they, the majority of them have to like one of my friends is a student nurse and she's effectively having through like the loan scheme is having to pay for her work experience where she is giving like free labor to a hospital. And it's just such a, yeah. So that's a particularly like pertinent one for like student worker solidarity, I think. Definitely. Definitely. So now we head to the main crux of the episode. All that stuff is just just padding all the all that important stuff about activism and student politics just padding who cares about jeremy corbyn i joke but the important thing is every week when we have a guest we ask them two things they hate about the world two things that give them hope we call it to hate to hope to hate to hope who knows but meg i've asked you for two things you hate about the world two things that give you hope what is the first thing you hate about the world Okay, I thought about this and genuinely, uh, I think it's the London Underground. Like, Good. if you would know, like, it's so, it sounds so bad, but if you would have said to me last year that I would be saying this, like, I lived right next to a tube station last year, but now I live in an area where there's only buses and yeah. getting the tube is just, it's so, it's so hot and you can't breathe and you never get phone signal and it's, just an unpleasant thing. Like, I'm, I'm glad we've got such a good transport infrastructure. But, um, <laughs> but at I, the same time, it's awful. Yeah, yeah. But you're completely right. And the, and the fact that you're saying about the heat, it makes it impossible to dress like properly or know how to dress properly because I would always like, if it's a really cold day, I'll wrap up warm, obviously, like big scarf and that. But then I get on the tube and I'm like sweating like a pig and then then I think oh I'm really hot and I just end up carrying myself and I go back outside and I'm really really cold it's just it sounds very much like first world problems but it, it's horrible no I agree and it's like do I take my jacket off for just two stops or like it yeah. it just causes a lot of avoidable and then, get, and then you get that sort of heat wave in June or July and mm-hmm. everyone is just like dripping with sweat and then for some reason it always seems to be then that like you get stuck in the tube and there's a signal yeah. fault or something like that and you're just sitting there in boiling heat Ugh, horrible <laughs> i wasn't expecting you to say the underground and i wasn't expecting that to be on anyone's list of hate but now you've yeah you said that i'm, I'm starting to starting to warm to that idea to be honest i'm glad like i need more people for my air con on the london underground campaign I rewatched um, Viva, Ven- Viva Vendetta the other day, and they, in that he shuts down the fascistic leader of Britain, shuts down the underground. I don't know why that actually seems to be quite. I don't know why that was sort of higher on his priorities, but um, he shuts it down. And I, and I spent the whole film. I wonder, well, how does people, how do people get to work? <laughs> um, genuinely, the people didn't seem to be answered because also the roads didn't seem that busy either. So um, I didn't didn't really understand that, but. Um, yeah, so maybe, right, maybe we won't shut the underground down. We just we have some aircon. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's a fascism is a big price to pay for for aircon, but 
it's an important discussion to be had, Nick. There is there's mm-hmm. an equation there. How much fascism do we really want for aircon? I have to ask. I have to ask our listeners that. Yeah. Um, last week we asked our listeners if, um, actually, our last week yes. Last week we asked our listeners um, if Sainsbury's was a tube station, which tube station would it be? And now I feel like we're not asking another tube-related question. So maybe all our questions have to be about the underground. But anyway, Meg, yeah, let's, let, let me ask you that. Then. If, if Sainsbury's was a tube station, what tube station would it be? Oh, gosh. I mean, it Can I tell you what my feelings on this were last week were? Mm-hmm, please do. In that, okay, so Sainsbury's sort of prides itself on being like one of the old, like, sort of traditional supermarkets, like mm-hmm. really old supermarket. And it likes to think that it like, also likes to pride itself on this idea that it's all better than Tesco and Asda and Little and Audi and all that. But it's not really like, it's not Waitrose. It's not like quite as pretentious as Waitrose. Um, and I also feel like Sainsbury's isn't as good as, like isn't that much better than, or, even, or any better really than like Tesco's or whatever. It just thinks it is. So it's got like a slight pretentiousness, but not quite as pretentious as like Waitrose. Um, but it's got to be sort of like an old, old historic area, I guess. That that is a lot I more. Obviously than... thought, obviously thought of this, thought about this too much, haven't I? No, um, I appreciate that. that. That was great. When when I've been lazy some weeks and we haven't recorded an episode, and people have wondered why not, they can now realise what I've been doing. Planning <laughs> uh, your elaborate. Tesco's underground collaboration. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, do, do, have you got any ideas? My immediate, like, just, I, I have no immense justification for this, but just on the vibes, I was thinking Elephant and Castle. Like, it's, I don't know, the, I, I can't explain I've it. I've never had it, a strong Latin vibe from Sainsbury's, but... No? Um, no, I mean... I, just lots, of, the... lots of Colombian restaurants in Sainsbury's. <laughs> I was kind of just going. If people, if people want like good value South American food, go to Elephant Castle. It's amazing. You know, I've only ever really seen like all I really do at Elephant and Castle is like change buses or change tubes or something. But yeah. I've only ever really seen like also, a similar sort of clientele. Also, the oldest shopping center in Europe, the first shopping center in Europe. Is Elephant Castle. I feel like I've really undervalued Elephant and Castle's name here. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, maybe, maybe. And I think there's no actual, no one actually quite knows why it's called Elephant and Castle either. Which is kind of interesting. I know way too much about Elephant Castle, clearly. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm afraid, Meg, I'm not particularly, I'm not one over on that. And a similar sort of clientele, if you're just walking around, lots of like relatively middle class, like suited office workers in Elephant and Castle or like at the actual tube station. Okay, at the tube station, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. I sort of get it, sort of get it. It's a vibes thing. It's a vibes thing. Someone sent an email the other day saying Canada Water. Um, mm, yes. But yeah, I don't know. This is maybe I need to ask every single guest this. We'll have like a poll at the end, the end of life. The when I die and the podcast <laughs> is no more, everyone Sainsbury's probably will be no more by then, and then no one will care anyway. And my life work will be in vain, as much of my life is. Okay, so Meg, what is your second hate? What's the second thing that you hate about the world? Oh gosh, it's so easy just to say something like Tory corruption, though, isn't it? Um, it doesn't make it yeah. any less true. I mean, yeah, but I mean, uh, it's got to be. So the, the first thing that like makes my skin crawl is the 2017 like Labour leaks from the, the general election. I know I've spoken a lot about the Labour Party, but yeah. like, there's a very good point to be made that the people who sabotage internally in the Labour Party are just so insidious and so, and their actions are so antithetical to what they present themselves as. Like, there's an argument to be made that at least the Tories are honest. Like, they're like, yeah, we're corrupt. Yeah, we're funded by XYZ company to go against your interests. And like, but, and 
so are the Labour Party, like the, the people who sabotaged in 2017 are exactly the same, but they just pretend not to be. Totally. And they make this big thing of showing themselves as reasonable, bringing the party together. For me, like the most public example of that is Tom Watson. But basically, it seemed like all throughout Jeremy's leadership was sort of marketing himself as sort of the grown-up amongst kids, trying to like bring everyone together and sort of, you know, in reality, I think most of us knew that he was just, you know, a slimy asshole that was doing everything he could to discredit Jeremy and and uh, crash the ship. Uh, sink the ship is probably the better expression, sink the ship. Um, so, yeah, and obviously the leaks that came out. And the other thing, that they didn't have the gall to say that they're whistleblowers and then, see, and then uh, try and sue the party and stuff like that and obviously everything that's happened since it's a mess and again the fact that nobody in the media seems to be talking about it and again they're just they're referred to as whistleblowers um you know and completely ignoring the horrible um racism towards diane abbott that was that, that was part of their messages and yeah it's absolutely horrid yeah i agree i think the the media silence on it is also like a massive a massive issue for the left in terms of like our coverage um and like when we're get, you can say all publicity is 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 good publicity but the coverage we get is not always the best yeah um that kind of that reminds me of a something I perhaps should have said earlier when we talk about the left and talk about Labour Party I think certainly in the well I would say probably throughout Jeremy's leadership there was a sort of at times a lot of a naivety about the media, I felt. Yeah. That if you were right, that they would report it. Or if they were right, then they would they would the media would report it like that. Whereas I think they should have been a lot more direct and tried to cut out the middleman as much as possible. And I actually think I said this a lot and I was kind of unpopular at the time. But I said in some ways, and obviously I don't mean in terms of content, but that Jeremy should actually try and ape some of the sort of like Trump sort of like model of speaking directly to people and cutting out the media. Um, obviously, I didn't mean in style or content, but just in that sort of manner. Um, but I certainly think there was a bit of naivety about it. But it's, there's certainly something that like, we have to learn as a movement going forward, is that we can't, we can't just sit back and hope the left is going to report things in a fair, unbiased way, because it just won't happen. Yeah, particularly like... Yeah, the like the the amount of time he had to withstand the constant the constant attacks, but yeah, I think it's also like quite like showing of like his his character, like that I think um, Owen Jones made this point that like Jeremy's character, like he's just generally like an affable and nice person. So when so when we talk about like Jeremy like wanting to bring the party together, like he actually believed that he could. Um, and like obviously there, there is nothing wrong with that, but yeah, I think that kind of seeped down into the the naivety of the movement, particularly because for so many people like like myself, it was kind of like our first foray into like politics at, at all. I thought you were gonna say our first rodeo, because that's just my expression I keep hearing everywhere at the moment. People saying it's I think it's an Americanism because we don't have rodeos in this country, but people tell me, oh, it's not my first rodeo. I've never said that. 4A sounds a bit pretentious, doesn't it? But it means the same thing. Yeah. I mean, I, I, 4A does sound slightly pretentious, but it sounds more accurate than rodeo because mm-hmm. I didn't, I don't, I'm not even sure I knew what a rodeo was until I watched Dallas Buyers Club or something like that. So, yeah. No, I feel like if you don't have an American accent, like not my first rodeo, it just doesn't, doesn't sound right. Not my first rodeo. <laughs> I don't know why my standard American accent is sort of like gold mining Texan, but it's who I talk. <laughs> Lots of rodeos in Texas, there must be. Yeah, definitely. Lots of everything in Texas, isn't it? Mm. The, the state where everything's bigger. Okay, so we've done two hate. What about two hopes? What, what's the first thing that gives you hope about the world, Meg? Oh, it's got to be, it's got to be this. We've had a lot of bad publicity about this, but genuinely, like the the solidarity and the movement um, that like erupted in, I would say it was about organised in four days for the um, LSE 
London School of Economics Palestine demo. Yeah. Um, honestly, it was very close to being called off because there was such a big backlash from students at LSE and students across London. Um, but it didn't get called off. So we had to, I wasn't really in, involved in planning, but there, it, I know that it was turned around so quickly. And like there was hundreds of us there so fast. And for so many people, they've got, we've got this such a busy time um, with university and people have got jobs and there's the UCU strike stuff going on. But the fact that so many people came out and stayed for over four hours in, in the evening slash night, like, uh, it was just so immensely hopeful. Like, we, uh, I felt like we could take on the world at that point. There's nothing like action that can make you feel hopeful, in a t- particularly at a time when many are sort of despairing and a lot of people are very apathetic. When you're on something like that, you really look around and you realize, wow, we can do something here. You know, and there's like, I don't think there's much that can compare to that in life. See, I'm not just depressing and grumpy. I can be happy <laughs> and hopeful sometimes. And it's, yeah, so many people at the demo were saying, like, Palestine has been withstanding this since 1948. Like, you can stay out here for one more hour. And it was just that sense that, like, everyone was there for a purpose and just, like, lovely people, like, such a diverse crowd. Like, I've had that feeling so many times, but because it was so recent, that's that's on my mind in particular. Yeah, what's a couple of hours compared to the seemingly endless suffering of the Palestinian people? Exactly, exactly. So what is the second thing that gives you hope? Second thing that gives me hope? Oh, I was going to be really cliche and say, like, my family and, like, the love and support that they give to me. But also, I reckon that when I say that, I also recognise that so many people don't have that, you know? Mm. So... What I will say is you're the first person who's actually mentioned family in this bit. Oh, really? Um, no one's mentioned it in the hate bit either. To me, to <laughs> but, um, mostly because I haven't given any answers. But, um, <laughs> um, but yeah, so it's quite interesting, actually. But yeah, go for it. Yeah, no, um, as I, uh, I'm, I'm just very lucky. I've got two, two older sisters. Um, I've got like, like my mom and I'm really close to my grandma as well. And um, like, I think it's, I think a very like controversial leftist figure said this once, but that they were, they were right on this. Like one of the least talked about privileges, because, you know, there's a certain element of the left that talks about privilege politics a lot. And I think there is a place for that, but like um, maybe not so much to like the degree it is given. But I think like a, like a privilege that no one talks about is like a good family and like a stable beginning. And like, I don't know, the, the hope that like, just like a regular family like mine, like regular working class family can like do so much that they do and like give me so much support. Like it's, they're inspirational people. That's really nice. It's really nice. I get it. Like in, in a world where people are struggling all the time, and in a world run by money, unconditional sort of like love and, and affection and kindness mm-hmm. still trumps that every time. Absolutely. And I think um, obviously it's a massive like stroke of luck. Like I didn't do anything to <laughs> deserve these people. Well, yeah. Uh, some people will say that your actions in a past life would... Uh, necessitated this others would say that was claptrap well i don't think any of us can really know can we but you know do you know what my issue with past life theory is is that everyone everyone was napoleon or someone important or cleopatra and no one was like cleaning toilets in china (laughs) i mean yeah I've never really thought about who I would be, to be honest, but I would, I would probably be cleaning toilets in rural England somewhere. To, to quote to quote Rodney Trotter in, in Only Fools and Horses, if there was such a thing as reincarnation, knowing my luck, I'd come back as me. <laughs> I'll just never, I'll just be haunting this planet forever. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, mm, it's not true. I like that. <laughs> well, that's that's your two hate two hope. I think that's really cool. I think that was a really nice blend. You hate the underground. You love your family. You hate elements of the Labour Party that like to stitch the whole process up. Mm. And protests give you hope. Mm. So that's a nice mix. That is a really nice mix. Um, we like to end our episodes with a bit of funny news. Are you, are you down to hear some funny news? Of course, all the time. Okay. Three giant stone penises have been stolen from a shop. Locals are saying it was a police cock-up. Uh, that's a terrible joke. I didn't write that joke. That is, the Metro wrote that joke. Three giant penis-shaped garden ornaments have been snatched from a shop. And apparently it's ironic because the sh- shop hit the headlines 10 years ago um, because the police asked him to remove the statues from the window and he refused. So it feels like 10 years later, the police have got their revenge by not doing that much to help him find them. Um, it have been the police doing it. Maybe they, exactly. they took the, yeah, you know? Yeah, a typical corrupt policeman stealing penises from shops. Um, what sort of shop was this? Like, well, I'm glad you asked that because Jason Hadlow, age 58, is the owner of Simply Dutch in Leeming Bar, North Yorkshire, and it's sort of like a mason. I think, I think it's one of those sort of like weird odd shops, to be honest. But I think I think it does a lot of like stone statues and stuff. They were stolen on Monday night. I think he's also took. Iron stags and five concrete dogs. It's a really odd thing. And also, it's really odd to like break into a a sort of shop that has like sells stone ornaments because it's not exactly the they're not easy exactly easy to like run away with, are they? It's not like a phone. But then again, if, <laughs> if, the, if the person who stole your phone couldn't manage to bring it home, how the hell would they bring a stone giant stone penis with them? You see, we need more bad thieves. They would have been found by now. Exactly. And the owner told the told the Metro, I can't believe anyone would want to steal some concrete willies. It's the end of an era. They were sentimental to me. I will probably see nothing like them again. That makes it, me feel a bit sad. He said it's a bit sad, but ultimately, ultimately, I was finding it difficult to sell them. I, ho- I just hope the thieves will find some use. Um, he sounds like a very loving man. So Yeah, I think, I think he's fine. a bit. Back in 2010, I tried to sell them. We had three different sizes. He said, I'm, unfortunately, I'm late. They've waned in popularity. People just don't like stone penises anymore. Goddamn PC culture ruining the exactly. stone penis woke, woke people are destroying the penis masonry market. No, it's, it's got to be millennials. Like, millennials yeah. are blamed. Millennials are destroying the stone masonry penis industry they need a bailout they need a government bailout that's what they need and then he said we should have had night vision out there frankly we cocked up oh God, why is he telling that joke now it's terrible okay back from a man who had from a man that had a stone penis is stolen to a man with a great name for what happened to him alan pidgeley has been fined 500 quid for his noisy pigeons this poor man he's been taken to court by his neighbor due to the unrelenting noise of his 15 pigeons. Alan Pidgeley, great name, who had a sign by his house saying Mr. Pidgeley's Pigeon Loft, uh, now might have to get rid of them to comply with a council noise order. Some neighbours support him and others are, and sorry, and some of his friends are even offering to pay his fine. Oh, wow. So we don't need to cry. I've never really been a big, I've never really been a big fan of pigeons, but I can't really imagine having like 15 of them. They um, must be racing pigeons. I thought you were going to say they must be racist pigeons. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no. Here we are, the woke army is back, destroying destroying the pigeon industry as well. Um, he also has rescued chickens, tortoises and 50 fish and a dog named Patch. A local said the pigeons sounded so distressed that she and her husband Paul had been forced to try and move from their village. Oh, so they're making this an animal rights issue now. I see what they're doing. They just want to try and sleep. Yeah. But they're bringing in, like, the RSPCA big guns or whatever. <laughs> the RSPCA SWAT team. <laughs> they, go, they, go, they sent a pigeon undercover to, to see what the situation was like. Oh, dear. Do you know what it's called when a one pigeon takes over the nest? I do not. A coup. 
Oh. I'm joking. That was so bad. I, I just made that I, joke I thought you were being serious and it took a minute to clock. I moved, the guy said he moved the pigeons as far away as possible. And my other problems have no problem. And my other neighbours have no problem with them. They love them. If you're planning on getting 15 pigeons, think about the effect on your neighbours. 14 pigeons, I think, would be fine. Because the article doesn't mention 14 pigeons. But 15 pigeons apparently is the right number for distressing sounds. So alternatively. You know, alternatively. Yeah, tell me, alternatively what? I was going to say that alternatively, if you really want to annoy your neighbours, get 15 pigeons. Yeah, like you, you can learn 15. two things. Yeah. Not 16, 15. 15 is the right amount of distress to annoy your neighbours. Some people like have pigeons on their roof, like as in they have like a loft on their like in big like high rises and stuff they have like lofts pigeon lofts on their roof no my my family home we had um like an old tv antenna that we we didn't take down but it was of no use and pigeons were like building a nest on top of it it's like i think they've got so used to nest boxes now they just flock to any nice roof that they see maybe they were just trying to get some channels yeah. They were like 10 years too late, but you know, good luck to them. Maybe they are, maybe they are 10 years too late. Like Dave has just come out for them. And, <laughs> oh, we can watch old episodes of Cool Cool Book of the Week. And um, yeah, maybe that's what they want to watch old Top Gear episodes. They're getting like the news from 10 years ago as well. Like they are. Maybe that's why they're distressed. <laughs> 2011, yeah. <laughs> This is, this is pre-Corbyn, you know. Financial crash has just happened, you know. This austerity is hitting the nation. And David Spamron was there with his horrible like <laughs> face melting. George he's, Osborne, like a, a creepy crackhead vampire. Oh, I forgot about that man. Yeah. Better. I think it's better yeah. to forget about him, to be honest. <laughs> the pigeons can't forget, but... The pigeons cannot forget. It. The pig, mm-hmm. That is why they're so distressed because they cannot forget about Joe Osborne. <laughs> but yeah, okay, last story. A man is on a mission to collect a chip from every Weatherspoons in the UK. Boris Bennett, 45, says he carries a folder. By the way, Boris Bennett sounds like a made up man. But anyway, Boris Bennett, 45, says he carries a folder of chips around with him, each in a clear pouch and perfectly labeled with the Weatherspoons restaurant they were purchased from. His hobby came to light when he posted a picture of his trading cards collection book on Facebook. I too, I must not gonna lie, I've seen a few posts about this in the last few days. It appeared on it appeared on the Facebook page Weatherspoon's Poultry Chip Count, where a group where people discuss how many chips they got with their meal, which I have seen advertised on Facebook. Some people were warning him, Boris, that it would take him a long time to go to every single Weatherspoon's in the country, meaning that his, the chips in his folder would eventually get quite mouldy. But the man behind the Facebook profile, Boris, claims he is deadly serious. He told the Metro that he has been coating chips in Vaseline or wax to make them last longer. So basically he's embalming his chips like Lenin. Um, I don't know if he's displaying them in the same way Lenin is displayed in, in Moscow, but nobody knows. Uh, a spokesman for Weatherspoons said that, has commended him and said that he is one of a kind. I mean, this is quite, yeah, this is quite good publicity for Weatherspoons. Like, they, they jumped on it, they did, they, they did. Need, do they need publicity? <laughs> I am quite concerned, though. How many, there are a lot of Weatherspoons in this country. There are 925. Doable, though. You think that's doable? Not impossible. If you did one a day, that's what, nearly three years? Just under about two and a half years. Mm, he's got time. He's only 45. I mean... To be fair, in some places you have more than one in like a city or a town, don't you? So you could probably do like more than like three in one day in some places. Say so like in central, central London, you can pay like nearly five pounds for a bowl of Weatherspoons chips. Like where's he getting this, this money from? Yeah. You know, that like really used to annoy me how like inner London Weatherspoons would seem to be a lot more expensive than... Like normal weather spoons. It's like it's like yeah, uh, it's, air, so... it's like airport weather spoons. It's like a completely different menu. The airport weather spoons is always exciting. 
is it? Well, yeah, just like just because yeah. of the pissed people <laughs> who miss their planes. Mm, this is true. Not good vibes. I, I'm not, not gonna lie. I, I don't like this bit. A spokesman for Weatherspoon said Weatherspoon has numerous fans from across the world who love to visit all the pubs and record their visits. Others take photos of the carpet, but this gentleman is one of a kind. Oh, this oh, one. many fans across is, the world. This is one for you. He's got 100,000 views on TikTok. So if you're on TikTok, go and <laughs> see Boris. Uh, Boris Bennett with his chip collection. Literally, he's got them in like plastic sleeves. And also, how do we trust him? How do we know he just hasn't got like one portion of chip? Just go to his, his Weatherspoon, local Weatherspoon, and just putting all his chips in different... It's like, yeah, I've been to Huddersfield. I mean, he's there's got to be some way of checking. Like, does he have a video of him like sealing the chip in every pub? I would, yeah. I would trust that. But each chip should have its own like individual, unique imprint, shouldn't it? Don't give them ideas. Don't give them ideas. <laughs> yeah, but that would up the price. That would up the. Uh, they wouldn't do that. It's not Brexity enough for for <laughs> <laughs> anyway that that is our funny news of the week done all this from comments let's have a look Stephen Mundy says I've been to a fair few myself in most of England but there's but I've been to loads in Wales and loads in Scotland it's going to take quite a long time to complete that to be fair fair play and good luck you're a chip of the old block mate I've been to so many bad puns and someone said he obviously has too much Vaseline but we won't get into that one um <laughs> Vaseline is not indestructible, though. Like, that will not preserve a chip. Yeah, I'm pretty sure if it was, like, wouldn't, like, the Moscow City Council just board the whole collection just to keep embalming Lenin and Vaseline? That is what he would have wanted. <laughs> pretty sure it's not what he would have wanted. <laughs> but, um... No, definitely not. Poor man. When, like, when Stalin was busy, like, editing all those photos, he just, like, inserted a picture of Vaseline in every single picture of Lenin. So everyone assumed that he was, like, a bigger fan of Vaseline. And 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 it worked. They and are, it worked. I was like, so, it worked. like, oh, yes, so how are we going to do it? Uh, what are we going to do with his body? Well, we could embalm him with his favourite thing, a Vaseline. <laughs> that is my Russian accent, by the way. Um, for those wonderful. who... For those who wondered why I was sounding like the Count from Sesame Street, that's a nineties reference, mate. I mean, I was uh, I was not alive. I was not alive. That's very depressing. Mm. Felt like I missed the good years. Those were the good years. Yeah, <laughs> we had Backstreet Boys, and too far. I didn't really. That I was after that. To be honest, so uh, what did we have? Green Day and Busted and. S Club. Those are the days. That's pretty elite. That's pretty elite. Those are the days where we used to reach for the stars. Genuinely, we would reach for the stars. Every mountain top. And now I want to dance to that song. Watch in. S Club 7. May ye rest in peace, even though you're all still alive. Um, those were bad days. Anyway, that brings this wonderful podcast to an end. Meg, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a great experience. It's been wonderful. And hopefully we'll have you on again soon. Yeah. Thank you you're so welcome. much. Great. You're welcome to join anytime you want to us. Uh, you, have a, you have a long-standing invitation. You can come on whenever you want. Oh, lovely. As long as you teach me how to use TikTok. Actually, don't teach me to use TikTok, please. I don't want to learn TikTok. It's scary me. I'm going to teach you TikTok. It's scary. I said it's scary me. It's, it's no. Scary. Very scary for me. Got to embrace change. I will not embrace change. I am a, I'm, I'm a clearly, I'm a very right wing Tory. I'm Jacob Rees Mogg in disguise. <laughs> I don't like change. I want to go back to the Victorian time where everything was lovely. But anyway, thank you very much for listening, everybody. Stay safe, stay dangerous, and we'll see you next week. Bye bye. Hello, I'm still here. If you enjoyed this episode and any of our episodes up to this point here's what you can do to help if there's a way to leave a review on whatever platform that you're listening to this wonderful podcast on give us a review honestly please do give us a review unless it's a bad one if it's a bad one just rem- like 
delete the app from your phone, never listen again, okay? But if it's a good one, please leave a good one, okay? Secondly, on that platform you use to listen to our podcast, if there's a way to subscribe or follow or do whatever it takes to make sure you get a constant feed of our new episodes, do it. Come on, what do you have to lose? Every Monday morning, get a new little package of love in your podcast feed. Wonderful. Next up, follow us on social media. If you've got Instagram, we're on Instagram. This Dangerous Media on Instagram. On Facebook as well, This Dangerous Media. On Twitter, we decided to be a bit different and have This Dangerous Podcast, which probably ought to change that. But anyway, Twitter is This Dangerous Podcast. So please, if you're on Twitter, follow us there. If you're on Instagram, follow us there. On Facebook, follow us there. That's a bit boring, isn't it? But follow us. Literally follow us on social media. I'm even thinking maybe to incentivize people that I'll start having little targets and forfeits if we get to a certain point. I don't know what yet. Maybe I could record naked if we get a thousand followers on Instagram or something. Don't hold me to that, okay? But I'm thinking, I'm thinking. In the meantime, if you've got any questions for us or any questions you want us to answer on the podcast next week, email us. You can email us at thisdangerouspodcast at gmail.com. Honestly, if you ask us a question, we will answer it on the podcast. Unless it's a really weird question. Unless it's asking me what I had for lunch. To be fair, I probably will answer that. I know Bertie will definitely answer that. But anyway, if you haven't done those things, do them. I'll be a very happy bunny. Why am I a bunny? It's not even Easter. I'll just be a happy ghoul because it's nearly Halloween. Okay? So, peace out, everybody. Stay safe. Stay dangerous. I love you all, but I don't really. I kind of more hate you, but I also kind of love you. So I guess I stomach you. That's probably the best thing to say. Have a great week, everybody. See you next week.